You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. 30 years I defended a constitution, and when it was my turn, I couldn't enjoy the constitution because they invoked SEPA rulings on me and said things I could not say. So at my trials, I had no freedom of speech to express to a civilian jury the, you know, why I had to do things. The first Navy SEAL Team 6 Commander, Richard Marcinko, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Have you ever done your job so well, your bosses punished you for it? Well, that's what Richard Marcinko says happened to him. He joined the Navy in the late 1950s and soon became a member of the underwater demolition team. He was sent to Vietnam. He became a Navy SEAL. And after the 1979 Iran hostage rescue debacle, the brass at the Pentagon chose Marcinko to form and be the first commander of the elite Navy SEAL Team 6. After three years in that role, Marcinko was given a new assignment. He was told to form a unit that would test the Navy's vulnerability to terrorism. And that, Marcinko says, is what got him into trouble, because he says he did the job so well that his project, called Red Cell, actually exposed vulnerabilities the Navy didn't want to acknowledge. In early 1990, Marcinko was actually sentenced to prison. More on that in a moment. But in 1992, Richard Marcinko wrote a memoir called Rogue Warrior, and that's when I met him for the first time. I would actually interview Richard Marcinko several times over the years as he continued to tell the Rogue Warrior story in a series of novels, fiction based loosely on his own experiences. So here now, from 1992, on the 30th anniversary of the publication of his first book, Richard Marcinko. Why did you write this book? Oh, very easy, Bill. I had to pay lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I think, the single most straightforward answer I've ever had to that question. Usually I get this, well, you know, we all have something to say, Bill. And it was kind of a therapeutic effect. My life was interesting enough that uh, everybody said someday I should write a book, and I was going to do that when the rocking chair made too much noise, and I had to go in the back room and actually do something. But uh, my lawyers advised me that there's no way that I could meet their advanced requirement without having advance on a book. So uh, it was survival. You do have a story to tell or two uh, in here. There's, you, there's quite a was – it, was it difficult to even sort it out and know where to begin? Oh, yeah. Uh, when people would say those magic things, I'd, I'd ask myself, how would I do it? I mean, do you do it chronologically and say make a series of books? Uh, do you do it management versus le- leadership and do it as a management thesis on uh, that it applies to industry? Uh, do you do it as a harem, scarem, shoot them up, bang, bang, you're dead book? Uh, which way do you slant it? And so um, John Wiseman, who uh, was assigned by the publisher, did a super job of molding it into uh, a, hopefully a book that a lot of people can read. And now being on book tour, uh, I'm amazed at the different cross-sections of people that, that are interested in it and why, things that I, I just didn't think it would be. My primary was concerned. I didn't want to just focused on snake eaters or special ops techs because we already know all you know we know each other and it's like talking in a vacuum tube so john wiseman did a super job of uh, translating for me and and lining it up so you could flow through the book and enjoy it 
It's been an interesting uh, morning to see who who picks up the book and why and what they turn to. The pictures seem to. I mean, it's we have a lot of people who turn to the pictures first, but they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they turn to the center, and I, and I see them going back and forth like this to the cover. You know, to see, because you've you've had a number of different faces, many faces, yeah, uh, over the years. That that's by design, isn't it? That's by design. Yeah, I have even uh, today as I look. I mean, yeah, you see me here with a braid. I wear a ponytail that uh, changes. I wear the Willie Nelson braids, and I wear it down when I'm in Muslim country. So. Uh, the Many Faces of Eve. <laughs> <laughs> is a book like this difficult to write in the sense that it brings back memories of things that maybe you hadn't wanted to remember as fully as you as you had to? Uh, no, not really, Bill. My, my biggest problem I had is, is having to sit down and write it. I couldn't tell what I was enjoying. Exactly what I was reading are the memories in between the lines that the reader doesn't see. And, and people that were close to me that saw the advanced copies felt the same, that they were kind of too close to it. They weren't sure whether it was only what was written, but in fact the memories in between the lines that we that were there know about. Because there's a lot that you take for granted because it's it's there. Yeah, we military guys write in brevity code anyway, speak in an accurate alphabet soup, and uh, then making it a snake eater's book uh, or a special ops book, there were a lot of things that are said by innuendo. So it became a, a major major problem for, for John to kind of translate everything so that you could pick it up, and it was even in English. You, get, you got a skilled co-author. Oh, he's a super guy. Yeah, yeah, he's very, very good. Take me back a little bit. Why did you join the underwater demolition team? Uh, well, it was uh, one for the action, two back in... Actually, before I joined the service, we had this thing called Lebanon in 1958. I'd already quit high school because I had all the answers, and I was making good money, and somehow got bored with uh, making good money and decided that uh, maybe I should go to Lebanon. And the Marines told me there was no guarantee, one, that I would get there in time, and two that they needed particularly a high school dropout. So I signed up for the Navy, and uh, about that time there was a movie out, Richard Woodmark in The Frogman. And I said, well, I'm in the Navy. That is action-oriented. Why don't I try that? Nice, calm line of work. Yes. Well, the other way is look at it. I never had to grow up. I had a, I can dive what people pay good money for, skydive what people get, pay good money for, and I could break more toys than people could buy me. So uh, I, I never had to grow up. Don't you have to have something of a death wish, though, to, to get into that kind of line of work? I think if you went into that line of work without the proper training, certainly. But, you know, it's like any – if you're a brain surgeon, you're trained to do it. It's not arduous to go in there and, and cut the – if you can find the brain. I mean, you know, with some people, there may be a little problem. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I certainly had, had good training and, and got involved with a lot of special programs. So it's just like – I mean, I think the guy, the little couriers here in town that ride those ten-speed bikes around, um, have a death wish. <laughs> yes. When did the seals come along for you? That came. Well, that was uh, John F. K. Uh, when he was president, he wanted unconventional warfare in each branch of the service, and so the Navy took, at that time, uh, twenty officers, a hundred enlisted men from the underwater demolition teams, and designated them seals. And unconventional warfare has a nice little story to it. it you either help a government out. Or you help a government out. Uh, depend, you know, it's the slant of the operation, but it's the same functional tactic. And that's where they started. So that was 1962. That agreed with you that? Oh, yeah. Um, there was a little bit, a little bit of jealous, jealousy when you're only an underwater demolition team because you deployed in support of the amphibious force, which meant you went everywhere at sea. When you were SEAL, you were working behind the lines purportedly, or you were going to work deeper inland to get targets. So they flew everywhere. And, then, and of course, the new thing in the block, they get the new weapons, they get the new toys. And we used to look across the parade field and say to you, why can't I do that, Daddy? Things haven't changed. When did you go to Vietnam? 
the Vietnam, uh, that was in uh, 1966, 67, 68. I was fortunate to be there for Tet of 68, which uh, was a big bang. You almost talked like you enjoyed it. Oh, I did. Uh, it was a junior officer. By that time, I was an officer. Uh, I got my commission in 60, 65. So, one, it was a junior officer's war and an enlisted man's war. And it was a small unit tactics war. It was the first time that we really publicized the use of SEALs. And so it afforded me the opportunity to develop tactics and learn the enemy. And, and in the book, we really try to spend time showing the progression of me learning the enemy and what it meant to tactics and the development of what I would hope proper employment of SEALs. Uh, that's always been one of my problems. I felt conventional minds didn't know how to use unconventional thoughts. Well, there's a lot of brain work involved in this, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, it was a, you can read it as a shoot 'em up, bang, bang. You can read them up as a brawling, brawling barroom brawl. Uh, you can look at it academically and say, if, it, if Dick Marcinko and his merry band were not properly utilized by the establishment, how does Special Operations Command, now in Tampa, that controls all special operations, how does that fit into the big JCS picture? So you can you can use it as a, a, a mandatory reading for an, a one of the Air Force or one of the military academies to say, look at this and, and see how you're going to do it. Or you can I'm a security consultant and a management consultant, and I apply that to industry now. It's a, they say if you can you can generate enough interest to get somebody to jump out of an airplane, you probably can generate something of an executive to get something to move to. Well, you know, when you get a, when you get an endorsement from Hackworth, that's uh, that's saying something. Another blessing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> After this short break, Richard Marcinko talks about the origins of SEAL Team 6. Now back to my 1992 conversation with Richard Marcinko. Let me fast forward a little bit now up to, to SEAL Team 6. Okay. That was created after the effort to rescue the hostages? That was after the failure. There was a report out by Admiral Holloway and, and the wise men, uh, there was a white paper so we could talk about it that basically said no longer will we do these kind of missions by committee, that we, in fact, will have dedicated people that do this and train together because that was one of the problems with the raid is, uh, it, you know, people that didn't live and, and sleep together were going to do this extended military operation that really pushed man a machine. You must have been the logical choice to be the, the commander of that, weren't you? Oh, yeah, it was a – I mean, it was a – it was one of I mean, uh, given your background, my background, and the fact that I was there as a planner, so I knew I saw the mistakes. Uh, I had orders to go to the National War College and take a break, and uh, I asked the then Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Hayward, uh, for his advice, and he asked if I would. He recommended I take the command and start it, and with the marching orders that you will not fail. And I took that as a uh, a strict strict words from God on high that I should not fail. Um, but for me, that was my thesis. My military career, all the, all the tricks of what I learned and all the things that I did not like about bureaucracy, I try to circumvent or write out of the process. Did your troubles begin when you formed Red Cell? I actually start when I formed Six uh, mm-hmm. because uh, it, it, was a, it was a unit that, was, that I had to go around to each, other, each SEAL team and take pick of the litter, which does not make your peers very happy. Uh, I put everybody in modified grooming standards, which means daddy, daddy, they could be in jeans and long hair, and uh, that's against the military jargon. I bought everybody brand-new toys to the point that 
the wife's got mad at me because there's nothing left for them to buy them for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they recognized the need on high, but as admirals rotate uh, every two years, uh, yeah, we didn't all start off the right time cycle, so I'd go through like two and three admirals on my, my tour as a commanding officer, and each one was not there for the ultimatum. It said, thou shalt take care of Dick Marcenko. So it, it, and it got old, and they got tired of me with heavy procurement demands, with special case uh, considerations, with looking like a, uh, a pirate of old, uh, and being a special case. I mean, people just, after a while, feel it should uh, fit into the military norm. But I get well. It's that attitude, I guess, that 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 you didn't want to fit into the norm that eventually got you in trouble through Red Cell, isn't it? Through yes. The yes. idea, the idea that that <laughs> you did what they wanted you to do, you did it too well, and here's their opportunity to to put you in your place and show you who's really boss. Yeah, it, it's a Red Cell. I got to take the people from six and was taxed by four star admirals which sites to hit, what sites on the sites on the installations to hit. And it was approved on high. We didn't sit in the bar and say, hmm, we need to get on a plane and hit this one tomorrow. And uh, we were very effective. I mean, and what was bad is we took, we did it on video cameras, and we did it by written report, and we did it broad daylight, and we did it by giving them warning. And it, uh, it I rubbed their nose on it hard. Did they learn anything from all that? Did they change anything? Uh, yes. At the time, there were changes. I mean, there were there were tactical changes in employment of forces. There was new instructions that allowed the commanding officer to have more say under terrorist conditions. Uh, as a rule, for example, the hospitals report to Bethesda, Maryland here, and the exchanges report to Brooklyn Navy Yard, and the air wing reports to their wing commander, and there's the guy in charge on the turf. So um, normally, in an everyday operation, they would tell the base why I have my boss, you just you know, take care of the sewers and the, the creature features, I'll take care of this. Because of the havoc that we would create during the seven to ten days that we hit them, uh, it was decided that instructions went out and said during a terrorist event or a similar catastrophe, the commanding officer was in charge and God Almighty, and we'll work out the infractions later. That's why they have lawyers, which I got to spend a lot of time with. <laughs> well, they couldn't put you away on anything except the charge of the, this almost sounded like trumped up charge of conspiracy to defraud the government? Yes. Well, one in the military at the time, the statute of limitations was only two years. Mm. Naval Investigative Service at, had by that time had gone almost 500 man years of investigation and had not found anything. Of course, in the same time frame, they missed Pollard, Morrissey, Walker and the Marines in uh, Moscow, which I guess should say a lot for me. It means I was more important than all of that, and uh, so I must have been a real burr. The when that occurred, they didn't pass it to justice. And two weeks before the five-year statute limitation was up, I was indicted on conspiracy to defraud. And after two trials, which I had to pay lawyers for, and that's why we have a book, uh, I was found guilty of with the hung jury of conspiracy and in layman's term i didn't blow the whistle and that's what i was guilty of i i i'm trying to figure out what it must feel like to be a hero what 34 medals to come back and the government your own government you did what they asked you to do they turn on you they send you to prison you're sitting in a cell wondering what what did i do what went wrong good point i think the harder the well having a political science major and a master's my uh, the first thing that hit me was 30 years i defended the constitution and when it was my turn, I couldn't enjoy the Constitution because they invoked SEPA rulings on me and said things I could not say. 
So at my trials, I had no freedom of speech to the maximum to, ex- to express to a civilian jury the, you know, why I had to do things. And had I, I had a two choice to take the stand and break the rules and be, go to jail for contempt. Or I could prefab a similar story and hope, hopefully the jury would still get some essence of why I did things. But technically, then I would be lying to a federal body and lose my retirement pay. And the Navy had two commander JAG Corps officers at both my trials plus an NIS agent. So I, uh, I, I kept my mouth shut, and as Paul Harvey says now for the rest of the story. Uh, but I get the impression also, though, that, that all right, you had to write the book. You got bills to pay, things yeah. like that. But you wanted to write a book at some point. You were talking about this earlier. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you, yeah you, I, this story's got to come out some, sooner sometime. Sooner or later, yes. Is it? Difficult though the parts where you got to do a little bit of a little bit of bragging, a little bit of boasting, and say, "Hey, I was pretty good." That's why we have a uh, another writer in there, <laughs> uh, and, and we actually did it that way. And we we let him verify because uh, my view is I didn't do any. I am in ter- Navy terms, I'm a Mark One Mod Zero person, which is the basic issue. I didn't do anything above and beyond. I only did what I'm trained to do and what was expected of me. Uh, so let somebody else do the accolades. I don't think uh, one. That's how I feel about it. I didn't. I only did what I was. What came natural to me. So it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a big push. If that was different from other people, then somebody else should say that, not me. I'm not bitter. I'm disappointed. Uh, but one, one can't complain about the Navy when it raised me from 17 as a high school dropout to captain and a master's degree. And and throughout the book, you realize I had a lot of fun. Uh, so you can't complain about that. What I am probably most upset about is now a fellow commanding officer that that may take charge and be offered a new program to do won't be as imaginative and won't have the same initiative because he doesn't want a Marcinko to happen to him. And when the CO doesn't take those chances, the junior officer doesn't take the chances, and the troops don't take the chances. So although they may have a successful operation, they won't have a very successful operation because they lost that edge. And, and that's the sad part about what happened. Richard Marcinko died on Christmas Day 2021. He was 81 years old. Now you can find all of our past episodes at our website, heardeverything.com. While you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1988 interview with Navy Admiral Elmo Zumwalt. The decision on the use of Agent Orange is not unlike most decisions in war, which are the least worst alternatives. Uh, So it was with Agent Orange. We saved thousands, even though we are, in the long run, probably going to lose hundreds of those thousands. And my 1987 conversation with the legendary test pilot Chuck Yeager. How does it feel to fly faster than sound? I I coined a stock answer in 1954. It never replaced sex. You know, that's the end of the question. (laughs) And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the neurologist whose book Awakenings became that major motion picture several years ago with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, my 2001 interview with Oliver Sacks. Chemistry for me started by being very sensory. It was the the color and the density and the texture and the smell and the feel of things and the way they transformed their frothings, their stinks, their bangs and everything. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.